0: You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The 6th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by RealSmart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Mark Cable from University College Dublin. His paper was entitled, Crossing Borders in Late Stuart Ireland, The Emergence of a Middle Ground.
1: Uh, Published in 1991, Richard White's The Middle Ground, an account of conquest and Assimilation, as well as cultural persistence in the Great Lakes region between 1650 and 1815 is widely acknowledged as a classic. Its influence has informed work in disciplines beyond history such as literary criticism, anthropology and political science. Now White's concept of a middle ground has been deployed by scholars to explore spaces of political, social and cultural encounter which were marked by a critical element of mediation. White argued that a middle ground emerged historically in the Pays or the upper country of French Canada. In this regard, he proposed the notion of a middle ground as a spatial metaphor applied to an actual space. White argued that a number of elements were necessary for the evolution of such a space. An encounter between colonial or state systems, and what he termed, and I quote, non-state forms of social organisation an approximate balance of power, a need or desire for what the other controls, and an inability on the part of one side to wield sufficient force to compel the other to do its bidding. While force and violence were often central to the creation and continuity of a middle ground, its defining characteristic was a process of mediation. White was emphatic that such a process entailed considerably more than compromise. In effect, then, the creation of a middle ground constituted what White proposed as a set of practices, Rituals, offices, and beliefs that, although composed of elements of the groups in contact, was as a whole separate from the practices and beliefs of all these groups. Crucially, a middle ground sustained only by a rough balance of power and a mutual need between the groups concerned. Now, in this paper, I want to uh, suggest on a preliminary basis, and it's very much a preliminary basis that White's concept of a middle ground provides a useful lens through which to view diverse cultural encounters in late 17th and early 18th century Munster. In a historical narrative traditionally dominated by themes of colonisation and cultural dispossession, it is useful to consider the ambiguity and contingent inflection of various cross-cultural and cross-social encounters. I want to propose that the evidence of an Anglo-Irish commonplace book, Records of Woodland Depredation and the work of a Gaelic poet attest to the emergence of a middle ground in Munster, which entailed a recalibration of previous practices and assumptions. Apparently compiled during the approximate period 1669 to 1677, the commonplace book of Sir Philip Percival Burton in County Cork contains a miscellaneous uh, series of entries on travel, reading and spiritual reflection interspersed with more quotidian details of estate business. Such administrative uh, memoranda are supplemented by similar similar entries made in 1681 and 1684 by Sir Philip's brother and heir, John Percival. The Percival family of Somerset had settled in Ireland at the beginning of the 17th century and through shrewd dealings, possibly not always of a transparent nature, amassed significant holdings of land, especially in North Cork. Philip Percival, who was knighted in 1636, developed Burton in the parish of Churchtown as the centre point of the estate. His son and heir John began the construction of a mansion of Burton which would be finished in the early 1670s by his son Sir Philip. The latter's draft notes of the design and layout of Burton, casually recorded in his commonplace book, indirectly reveal something of the tensions which permeated the outlook of settler families. In its completed form, Burton House was designed designed in what Rolf Loeber has called the late Caroline style. In this regard, it resembled similar mansions at Aircourt in County Galway and Bewley in County um, Louth. Their external symmetry of design signalled a break with the preceding defensive castle architecture and projected confidence and affluence. Yet a sense of ambiguity informed the sketches and outline plans recorded in Philip Percival's Commonplace book. At first glance the mansion was conceived as a locus of leisure and sociability, with provision internally for a parlour, drawing room and gallery. Externally in these plans, an emphasis was placed also on recreation, with reference to, and I quote, a garden for pleasure containing two acres, a wilderness, a bowling green uh, and a long terrace walk. Promenades for entertainment and exercise were aptly provided for, with reference to, um, I quote, a long walk running by the house and garden quite across the park, the way leading to the church and town, and a long walk before the court. Clearly, these plans envisage Burton as a place of carefree enjoyment, situated within a peaceful and secure environment. However, when Percival reflected on, and I quote, what I design in and about the house, a somewhat different scenario is anticipated. In contrast to an uh, an initial emphasis on the creation of a space for recreation, the focus now turned to provision for defence in case of attack. I quote, the house of what is designed about it may be capable of making some short defence if occasion were. Accordingly, in terms of construction and design, due consideration needed to be given to the creation of something like a strong room where documents and valuables might be stored. I quote, the first thing to be thought of is some private place where to hide papers concerning my estate and other things of value in case of sudden extremity. Moreover, further defensive measures were to be integrated within an external complex of buildings centred on stables. I quote, the stable and other conveniences thereto belonging to be built after this manner. Within an assemblage of stables and various gates, it was proposed to locate, and I quote, two towers which are to serve the coachman and postilion for lodgings and which serve to command the walls with firearms. Although schematic and informally executed, these architectural plans exemplify dissonance or an ambiguity arguably evident in settler mentality in later 17th century Munster. While a relative measure of political st- stability prevailed by the 1670s and early 1680s, the threat of occasional violence on the part of Tories or bands of roving outlaws still presented a danger. Indeed, Sir John Percival was much preoccupied with the em- elimination of the Tory threat in the early 1680s. Furthermore, tension or insecurity were not simply generated by a potential threat of disorder and violence. The cultural and social isolation engendered by ethnic, linguistic and, for the most part, religious exclusivity, no doubt further contributed to an awareness of vulnerability. Yet everyday considerations of a practical nature, not least among them a desire to generate profit on lands acquired over the course of previous decades, required the creation and cultivation of a space which permitted and enabled interaction across ethnic, linguistic and sectarian borders. If the architectural plans envisaged for Burton betray a sense of insecurity, notes on North Cork family lands entered into Philip's um, uh, commonplace book are reflective of the extent to which he'd become conversant with the immediate monster landscape. Remarkably detailed descriptions of townlands in the Percival estate are provided. For example, Percival's Percival's description of the seven ploughlands of Lohart and barony is indicative of of considerable familiarity with this parcel of lands and their productive capacity. Among the seven ploughlands was Lohart itself, which Percival described as, and I quote, where the castle stands is divided into the castle half ploughland and the half ploughland of old Lohart, alias Shan Lohart. This Latter reference illustrates the cultural significance of landscape where even place names were unstable and subject to mutation in the context of flux and con- contestation. Yet the combination of Gaelic and Anglicised versions of, of a place name is also suggestive of a process of mediation on the part of settlers. If the Percival Mansion was named Burton after their home place in Somerset, the family's estate was effectively constituted toponymically by Gaelic or Anglicised versions of original place names. Percival, it appears, was also intimately familiar with the physical texture of the landscape. In this regard, he was quite specific in his account of Lowhurst's Castle Half Ploughland, which he noted was, and I I, I quote, divided into three parcels beside the meadow, there is a good part of it enclosed with ditches and quicksets, Uh, quicksets or hedges, Measurement and enclosure were also integral components of an overall evaluation of a given landscape. Moreover, if a landscape was composed of cultural and physical attributes, it was also assessed on the basis of its financial worth and return. Lowhart was considered especially desirable as it was, and I quote, "...very good for land for cows. Both half ploughlands would keep nine-score collops all year long with sufficient grass and hay." Additionally, Percival was of the opinion that its tenant would, I quote, have enough corn for his family. Confirmation of Lowert's fertility was provided by the fact that the local butcher was prepared to give, and I quote, to give two or three pence more for a cow kept here than for one kept in another place. Somewhat bemused by an apparent inconsistency, Percival remarked that, and I quote, though to the eye and feeling um, the one should appear as good as the other. Nonetheless, Lowert was deemed superior. While at first glance, uh, Percival's casual observations of this, this passive of land and to Barony appear pure, purely utilitarian in scope, it is arguable also that they reflect a level of engagement with the landscape which is affirmative and emotionally engaged. The burning of the Percival Mansion at Burton during the Williamite Wars is emblematic of the limited reach of the state across large tracts of territory in late 17th century Ireland. Tories and bandits were especially active in Cork and Kerry, Significantly, by the beginning of the 18th century, Tory depredations were largely confined to Southwest Munster and South of Southeast Ulster. Such was the extent of disorder in South West Munster in the early 18th century that S.J. Connolly has, and I quote, included it among certain regions which were in effect outside the normal operations of the law. In the case of Kerry, Connolly has discerned an accommodation of Protestant gentlemen to local power networks and alleged malleability on the part of magistrates in their attitudes to Tories. In fact, the demographic advantage enjo- enjoyed by the majority community required an apparently ascendant Protestant elite to negotiate the predication of its authority on a contingent basis. Indeed, pervasive lawlessness was not solely manifest in Tory criminality. For instance, archival material relating to Lord Shelburne's estate in um, Sir William Petty's sum, uh, to Lord Shelburne's estate in South, South Kerry reveals prolonged and near continuous plunder by local intruders of trees and woodlands between the 1690s and 1720s. Now, these contemporary records of woodland depredation on the lands owned by Henry Petty, Lord Shelburne, provide a vivid glimpse of the intensity of interaction across communal boundaries in the early 18th century. Uh, and just to give you some, some, uh, some sense of, of, of these records, uh, for instance, in August 1704, a series of local individuals made depositions to a Mr. Jones of Glanbehy which covered theft, uh, alleged theft stretching back to 1696. For example, uh, Donna Kahasi deposed in 60, that in 1697 Peter Rice cut down timber in Glanbehi Woods for shipbuild, uh, shipbuilding purposes. A witness called Michal Sullivan informed Jones that in 1697 Donna Rua Griffin helped himself to a quantity of dry bark from the woods of Glanbehi, while Dermot Donovan testified in the same year also that Geoffrey and Daniel Connell and I quote, carried out of the woods of Glanbehi both plank timber and keel for a boat. In February 1703, Doneger Reardon swore a deposition before Richard Orpen in his capacity of Justice of the Peace that about 10 August 1700 he had observed in the region of 500 foot of oak planks being cut down on the orders of Florence Mahoney, who then transported them to Dingle. While on, about, on or about 20, 20 August 1700, Reardon witnessed uh, Dermot MacDaniel Mahoney of Valencia Island Carrying home 600 foot of oak planks. Furthermore, Reardon deposed that on or about 23rd August 1700, he observed Charles Shukru of the parish of Prior in the barony of Yvra remove timber from the woods of Kumbaha and Derryingown. Now, the highly informative uh, Reardon also revealed that he saw Turlach MacOn and Thai cutting down timber for the use of Patrick and Keen Mahani of Valentia Island. Evidently, timber was in some demand for boat building purposes and it was readily transported across Dingle Bay. The one common factor to all of the above allegations was that the woods belonged to Henry Lord Shelburne. Reardon, who was illiterate, assented to the deposition by making his mark. Indeed, it's quite probable and more than likely that he gave his evidence in Irish and it was subsequently translated to English. Such evidence reveals a milieu of social contiguity where illicit activity was common knowledge and where a shared ethnicity provided no guarantee of mutual discretion or loyalty. If, as seems very likely such depositions were originally given in Irish and subsequently translated to English, it is reasonable to assume the existence of a transactional middle ground where a linguistic difference was bridged by bilingual interlocutors. If the, commonplace books, uh, if the commonplace book observations of Percival reveal a mindset attuned to the particular cultural requirements of a North Munster locality, it is possible to acquire a sense of an elite Gaelic perspective from a late 17th and early 18th century West Munster poet, Egon Arachala, Uh, An elusive figure, little by way of biographical detail, survived in relation to him. The Gaelic scribal tradition recalls that he was born in the of Lucra, an isolated mountainous district in East Kerry. Possibly born around 1670 in the immediate locality of Killarney, Orahala engaged in scribal work as well as writing prose. Like his bardic predecessors, patronage was a key component in his sense of status, and pat- patrons were readily available to him. He composed poetry of communal nature for members of minor Westminster Catholic gentry families with, um, with Jacobite, uh, Jacobite loyalties. Um, now, the varying fortunes of two uh, aristocratic dynasties at the end of the 17th and at the beginning of the 18th centuries, the Gaelic McCarthys and the Anglo-Irish Browns, informed the outlook of Orahala. Indeed, Orahala was closely associated with all McCarthy revoke And it has been suggested that he was a tenant and owns land uh, outside Killarney, and that it was in his house uh, that he immersed himself in Gaelic scholarship. Furthermore, McCarthy was a presence in Orahila's world in a way that was not the case with Sir Nicholas Brown, whose lands were confiscated in 1692 and who died in exile in the Low Countries in 1720. His poetry was formulated in a very traditional fashion with an emphasis on conventional personal traits, such as nobility of lineage, martial agility, hospitality, demonstration of legitimate lordship, charity to the destitute, patronage of scholarship and religion, and so on. However, it is inaccurate to characterise his work as traditional insofar as this implies a corpus defined by estate or antiquarian quality. O'Rahal's poems are also uh, often politically, uh, uh, powerfully political, and deeply personal in a a manner which utilises the prestige of tradition to articulate a response to contemporary issues. So in this respect, it is instructive to consider aspects of Arachala's corpus generated within a context of recalibration enabled by cultural middle ground. It is clear that Arachala operated within a sphere inflected by diverse influences, and his poetry surely reflects a milieu marked by a process of mediation. His elegy for John Blenner Hassett of Bally City near Tralee illustrates his adept accommodation of an Anglo-Irish grandee uh, to the template of Gaelic ele- elegy. Blenner Hassett, who died in 1709, was a member of a family which first settled in Kerry in the early 17th century, and he was MP for the county from 1703 until his death. The family was part of a local nexus of Protestant landowners connected through marriage. In the poem beginning, a spoiling a loss throughout the kingdom... O'Rehala lamented the death of the Kerry landowner and politician in terms of the communal impact of his demise. As with countless Gaelic lords lamented in elegies over previous centuries, uh, Blennerhass's demise was presented as a grievous blow to society, especially to the weak. His passing represents a severe loss for the literati and Gaelic poets. Indeed, Blenarhass' death represented the loss of a leader for the English of Ireland, Pjapnall, a geolm, a sedyshoch while simultaneously constituting an enduring blow to the Gaelic Irish, crack from and sale Shivi. Naturally, the deceased was lauded for his courage, bravery and valiant disposition. His demise was a loss to the inmates of Truly Prison, who might otherwise have benefited from his assistance. His passing was mourned across Munster and local place names uh, were invoked as sites of lamentation to heighten the sense of collective grief. Blenarhasset was preeminent among the English of the kingdom in his devotion to the well-being of the people. His debt was mourned in conventional elegiac fashion by both his household and the landscape. His home had been a stereotypical locus of hospitality where noble visitors were treated to wine and ale and served brandy and sugar. Clearly, French brandy and sugar from the West Indies were considered commodities of considerable prestige. Now, interestingly, O'Reilly emphasised that Blenarhasset's home, which he termed the expansive palace of the monster Englishman I Ashing and Tasnik that this home was a place of sociability for Englishmen, the where poets, bishops, lords and viscounts gathered to enjoy his hospitality. Such grandiosity is echoed in Hassett's will, which he dictated in seventeen oh eight. In this document, Blennerhassett uh, described his residence uh, at Ballycedia as a mansion house in Verticumas, and he left to his wife, Margaret, I quote, my two coaches with all their harnesses and necessaries with 12 bay draft horses for coaches. Adroitly avoiding any hint of religious tension, the Pope sought the, intersens- uh, the intercession of the Holy Spirit to ensure the internal salvation of his Protestant subject. Now, Louis Cullen has characterised Anglo Irish patronage of Gaelic literature even before 1700 as essentially antiquarian in motivation, and he has argued that it should be understood as part of a general and burgeoning elite Gaelic interest in antiquarian matters. Even in the absence of specific details regarding his possible commission, it is clear that a poem such as this for John Blennerhassett has little to do with antiquarian nostalgia and served more as a ritual expression of communal mourning for a local notable in an Irish-speaking district. The incorporation of Hassel within a Gaelic template of mourning, while in no way alighting uh, el- uh, his ethnicity, is an expression of a broader process of cultural accommodation which enabled coexistence. And I want to finish up by, by looking at somebody from the other side of the, uh, the fence, a Gaelic Irishman, um, a pseudo elegy of the Ruggish Murk a pseudo elegy composed by O'Rahilly on the death of Murtagh Griffin, an entrepreneurial middleman of Clare origin who settled in Killarney and conformed to the established church is indicative of heightened social tensions among the Gaelic Irish as new opportunities enabled culturally uh, and socially agile individuals to prosper. Griffin um, served as an administrator to Lady Ellen Brown during the attainder of her husband, Sir Nicholas. The Browns had first settled in the Killarney area in the late 16th century when uh, when they had acquired lands under the auspices of the Munster Plantation. In 1709, Griffin obtained a position of land in the barony of Dunkern from the Hollow Sword Blades Company, uh, which, had purf- which had purchased the forfeited estates of Dunham McCarthy, Earl of Clancarty. In the same year, Griffin acquired a parcel of land from the company in McGonaghy Barry, Barony, uh, which had also been confiscated from McCarthy, and he resold this land the following year at a considerable profit. Griffin's interests extended beyond Kerry, as in his will he left an estate in Kilmacud, County Dublin, to his wife Jane Archibald. Griffin was adept in his engagement with political and legal authority. For instance, in regard to the execution of his will, he stipulated that a brown uh, kinsman and chamber counsel, William Weldon of Inn in London, should oversee its administration. Now, addressing the personification of, of death directly, O'Rahala asked that in view of Murtagh's demise that an equally unpopular local Arrivist, a of o'Cronin, who anglicises himself into contemporary documents as Timothy Cronin, be dismatched immediately as well. Next, address, uh, addressing Graves, uh, Griffin's grave slab, the poet implored it to press down firmly on a despoiling rake who had plundered the countryside to prevent, it from, uh, to prevent him returning from the Greek underworld river of woe, Acheron. O'Rahal depicted Griffin as a rapacious and cruel heretic from whom hell is insufficient torture. The poet scarcely concealed his glee when he spoke of Griffin floating helplessly and weakly along the river Styx which formed the boundary between earth and the underworld. Peter had shut the gates of heaven in his face, and Griffin was pursued by demons of hell. O'Reilly depicted Griffin as a diabolical serpent who, who, serpent who had condemned the goyle, turned his back on the clergy and deserted, and I quote, the son of James by means of an oath. By way of conclusion, O'Reilly accused Griffin, presented as a mercenary who crossed the, Atlant, uh, the Shannon, of having unleashed havoc through his dishonesty, sexual exploitation of women and by reason of his practice disavowal of the Pope's legitimacy. Worse perhaps, given Aurahal's sense of primal ancestral loyalty, Griffin had deceitfully plundered McCarthy territories. But now he has secured his just reward in hell as his mortal remains occupied barely six feet of ground in the Protestant graveyard at Killarney. Crucially, Griffin was neither an English nor an Anglo Irish interloper. He was a Gaelic Irishman who had exploited such social and financial advantages and opportunities as were available to him within the context of what was arguably a middle ground. In terms of a historical narrative which traditionally uh, depicted early modern Ireland as indelibly marked by a, process, uh, by a brutal process of conquest and colonisation, it is useful to reflect on those admittedly uh, elusive spaces where cultural and social interchange were made possible by mutual necessity, desire and accommodation. Drawing in Richard White's concept of a middle ground in a preliminary and approximate fashion It has been suggested in this paper that such a mode of analysis potentially sheds fresh light on encounters, actual or metaphorical, which may typically have been seen as evidence of dichotomy rather than fusion or exchange. Although the testimony of Philip Percival's commonplace book, Evidence of Woodland Depredations, and the literary work of a Gaelic poet may seem random and apparently unrelated, they are nonetheless suggestive of multiple processes of mutual encounter, engagement, and creative adaptation. Importantly, such an interpretive approach restores agency to a Gaelic world which has been too readily uh, depicted as culturally passive and lacking in social dynamism. Indeed, it is arguable that the concept of the middle ground restores not just a long obscured capacity for for resilient configuration to Gaelic Ireland, it also hints at the mutually transformative nature of Gaelic and Anglo-Irish cultural encounters across the early modern period. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.